and greeted him at the door in a white toweling robe. <laughs> it's not sexy, Michelle. People don't find it sexy. Hello, Michelle. Hey, hey, Geordie. Hey, hey, we're the <laughs> eavesdroppers and we're gonna eavesdrop around. We're too busy singing. Oh, copyright. I have to stop right there. I'll get in trouble. Otherwise, the monkeys are gonna have your ass. Who? I changed all the words. <laughs> Who? What? Who are they? <laughs> the apes. The gorillas. The monkeys are practically all dead now, Michelle. Did you know? I think there's one left. Yes, but you know what? I think it was actually when I was doing the Britney case and the conservatorship. Yeah. I actually believe that one of the monkeys. Mickey Dolan's. I think he was under a conservatorship. <gasps> it was by the new wife and son. Oh, hang on. It wouldn't be him because he was the most successful. Well, he, no, no, no. He had dementia. Who? Mickey Dolan's or Mike Naismith. I know all their names. I was a massive fan. Were you? As a child. Davy Jones, Peter Talk, Mike Naismith. Whose mother invented liquid paper? What, Whiteout? Yeah. Oh my God. And Nikki Dolans, who went on to do a lot of writing for TV, I think. It's quite famous. Right. I'm going to actually look this up right now. Do it. Conservatorship monkeys. While Michelle is uh, researching some inane facts about a fictional pop group that no one listening to us will remember... I'm going to introduce myself. I'm Geordie and I'm doing a podcast here with my friend, Michelle. She's too busy Googling or duck, duck going right now. Oh, do you know- and we do this weekly podcast. We run the gamut or gamut, as Michelle likes to say, from true crime, real life, supernatural. And we laugh. We laugh not at, but with people. Don't we, Michelle? I'm Michelle. I am. I'm a host. <laughs> She's the host with the most. The most links. With the most troubled brain. I forget everything. Now, my Google froze, so I can't check it. Okay. But listen, eavesdroppers, I've had some technical difficulties, so I can't double check my facts. But I do believe one of the monkeys was put into a conservatorship by their wife after he had dementia and was treated very poorly, was physically treated poorly and had all his money stolen. It was Mike Nesmith, oh probably the, the richest one because his mum invented liquid paper. He was the tall one with the beanie hat. It's really awful. I remember thinking, well, I've got too much on Britney to include this. Absolutely terrible when you give somebody the power over your life and what they can do to you. Speaking of technical difficulties, we had a minor complaint from a very avid listener. Okay, what happened? Mark from Rains Park didn't write in because I see him once a week. And he said, our jingles almost deafened him. He actually said, sort your levels out, girls. Sort them out. And I said, well, I have a wall. I do the edit. Michelle has is the next wall that tests the levels. So if they are wrong, sometimes they will be because we're busy ladies. We're trying to pump out the content for you guys. And we've got other lives as well. So if they're a little bit wrong, please do tell us and we'll try and rectify that. And guess what? We would like... Don't you love a, a voice note, Michelle? I fucking love a voice note. I love it. It's so much faster than texting and I can just ramble on, as you know. As you That's know. fun. But what I was going to ask is our eavesdroppers who have been writing in and thank you for all of those lovely emails and notes on our social media. But what about a voice note? 
why don't you voice note us on how do they well, do they that? still have to email us their voice note email us the but voice we'd note. love to hear oh you could be on this show oh my god we do have to do one caveat if you voice note us you have to give us permission to let us play yes. you or maybe even turn you into a jingle as well we could do it cut it up cut it up cut it up what? you know we could do like those mixes um, I'm not sure if our technical abilities stretch to that, but definitely we would love to hear your voice notes and maybe we might even feature them on the program if you give us the go ahead. Exactly. What do you say? Come on, eavesdroppers. And also I noticed, Michelle, speaking of business, Patreon's changed. I don't know how. Apparently it looks nicer or something. I don't know. But if you're not a patron, we've got some things going up there soon. Some interesting interview style, little bits and bobs. So why don't you sign up and listen? We will give you hints about who we talk to week to week. And if you're not a patron, then you won't be able to listen to it. You can give us a tip. You can sign up for a monthly amount. It's very easy. If you love us, then show it. And it doesn't even have to be much. It can be a dollar or two a month. You know, that's less than a cup of coffee. Enough to keep us in brown lemonade. It's less than a brown lemonade. Less than one brown lemonade. Mm. So see how you go. We love you and we love the love. We can share a brown lemonade, can't we? Well, if we're ever in your neck of the woods, (laughs) we'd love to share. Two straws, one pint glass. She made it awkward. She made, made it awkward. awkward. She How made did it I make awkward. it awkward? Awkward, awkward. She made it awkward. She awkward, awkward. 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 How bloody awkward. awkward. Awkward, awkward. Well, this is awkward. Awkward, awkward. How bloody awkward. Awkward, bloody hell. Fuck you. Listen, Michelle, last week you shook me when you told me about that comment awakened in me some kind of existential fear that I've had since childhood. You know, I've only really got, I've got a lot of fears. I suppose I'm quite an anxious person, but there's three main things. One is the comet. The other one is nuclear war. Obviously, as a child of the 80s, as you are, you would remember that awful feeling as a eight, nine, 10 year old, feeling like the bomb could be dropped at any point. And all those TV shows that were on at the time, poisoning our minds and giving us fearful nightmares. And the third one was a pandemic especially in my 20s and 30s, because I knew it was coming. It was predicted for a long time through data and analysis. Can you imagine how anxious I was when we got locked down in March 2020? I was beside myself. All of my childhood fears came to the fore. I would also say that when all of this stuff started happening with Russia as well, and you were an avid reader of the newspapers about the clouds coming down of radioactive whatever, should something happen in Russia, if they were going to blow us up or blow whoever up. I know that you were very concerned. Mm, I don't know about clouds, but I do know that they've got missiles pointed at us. And if they wanted to just press a button, they could. I'm always thinking that's the next step. Some idiot's just going to press a button. And we did an episode, I think on Patreon, where we talked about near Mm. misses in the past. There's been a few, guys. What I'm not trying to do right now is to agitate anybody else's anxiety. I just wanted to reach out to anybody else who might be feeling like me, because I made a joke and pushed it under the carpet. But it did stay with me, Michelle. I would walk out of the supermarket and wonder what would happen if it was happening now. What would it look like? What would it feel like? How would I feel? Would I be frightened? Would I be accepting like Jim Carrey when he found out he had minutes to live and it was a false alarm? But really... 
it doesn't bear thinking about. It's feeding into my anxiety. It's not something I can control. It's not something that's actually there. It's not like I've fallen into a pit of vipers and I need to save myself. It is not visible and I shouldn't think about it or worry about it. Well, that was going to be my next piece of advice to you, which is I don't suffer from anxiety in the way that you do. I'm more reactive in terms of I've got a stressful day and I'm feeling overwhelmed, but I don't feel overwhelmed by the larger issues because I feel like I can't do anything about it. So I just need to enjoy this very moment right now where I'm sitting here looking at you, doing something that I love, doing this podcast. The world's not so bad because my existence in this very moment is absolutely fantastic. And that's how I try to live my life. I don't get worried about those bigger things. That's why I guess I can flippantly say, and the comet's going to hit us in 2042 because it's quite a long way away, not that far, but enough away for me to not care. I just live. Just live. Well, exactly. Well, like I was going to say, there is no quick fix for anxiety generalized anxiety disorders or catastrophizing, which is what I tend to do. Like I will think of the worst possible scenario in my head. There are a few things that you can do, like tools that you can have to try and help you in the moment. Like some people find holding the place where they feel the anxiety, like I would feel it in my chest. Sometimes I feel it all the way through my body, like my knees will go cold or something. But if you hold that place and just think about it, hold it and, and try and talk yourself down. Also, self-talk is another way to emotionally regulate as well. Talk to yourself. Say, listen, it's not so bad. It's not going to happen now. It's not happening. Well, it might not ever it's happen. It's in your mind. It's a fear. Well, exactly. And what's the point of worrying about it? There is no point. The only thing it does is raise physiological responses in you, which will then feed the mental worry, cause sleepless nights, all of that. I mean, I might be flippant and funny about these things, but really it affects me quite badly. So I just want to say if it has affected anybody else, then there are a few things you can do and I understand. Well, I feel like I need to apologize to you because I was really rather flippant about the comet's going to kill us and not being funny, this has been reported for decades that something is happening within the next sort of 20 years. We are potentially going to be obliterated. There was a near miss two years ago, Michelle, I've Yeah, I mean, they're happening all the time. You know, Neil the scientist says that there are a lot of near misses. But when we talk about near misses, it's not like they are meters away from crashing into us. There are huge distances, but in terms of the broader nothingness of space, then yeah, I guess they're quite close. Again, I apologize if that was worrying to you. No, don't apologize. That's my problem, not yours. I agree that that's something I can't control. I can't control your reaction to things. I'm rather complacent about just life unfolds as it's meant to unfold. And we all know that we are born, we live, we die. It's all going to happen. We just don't know when the end is, is near. And no, but really, like, what can you do? She's a, she's a jolly no, little you, thing, isn't she? The thing is you can't do anything. Well, no, you it's just true. have to like go day by day. Exactly. It's good to live in the moment. To me, depression is you know, reliving the past, past misery, past mistakes and anxiety is worrying about the future Mm. in general terms. That's not the same for everyone, of course, but for me, that's how I square it up in my brain. So living in the moment, enjoying what you've got around you right now, being grateful 
it works. It works for me sometimes. But every now and again, I will be dragged back into that existential cold fear. And especially when we're talking about aliens and scary things. Because you remember I told you as a child, the skies in Australia were so vast and so full of stars, I used to be frightened to look up. Really? In case I saw something I didn't want to see. Gosh, yeah. I'm learning all sorts of new things about you. I had no clue. Because I used to <laughs> love looking up. These are my hidden pieces, you know, the bits that I keep hidden because it's shameful. It's embarrassing. It's not embarrassing. It's just private, I would say. No, I felt embarrassed, which made it embarrassing to me. That's why I wouldn't talk about it or advertise it, mm. you see. It's funny that you talk about that word grateful because I really have a bit of a bleh, to that word. I don't like it. I feel like it's so overused and I feel like it's so glib. People say they're grateful, but I don't really feel that people are. And I think a better word is appreciation and to appreciate what you have. Because grateful for me implies that you should be subservient to the feeling, whereas appreciating something is a more powerful, assertive feeling or word. I guess. Okay, well, that's a good thing to do as well. Well pointed out. <laughs> that's just me. That's just my little bugbear. Ew. Well, that's, that's one for the feedback. Bin. 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 Michelle, do you have anything to tell me? Well, I will say I had a one-to-one face-to-face with none other than Neil the Scientist. <gasps> He's one of our researchers. He even has his own fucking jingle. Yeah, I've got some sciencey stuff, not for this episode, but coming up. Oh. So keep an eye out for that or an ear out for that. Neil, you make science fun. <laughs> Neil, you make science fun. <laughs> he can't have two jingles. No, he can't. One, one and done. That's all he gets. Well, that's exciting, Michelle. Mm. What are we talking about today? Murder. 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 We've had enough of aliens. We've had enough of UAPs. We've done two episodes in a row about those. It's time to get back to, well, basically I've got a, like almost a doorstep murder. What? No. Ouch. Well, no. It's not a doorstep murder. <laughs> because I did have one and I don't think I can talk about it because it happened on my father-in-law's doorstep some time ago, not that long ago. And it happened in a house that he rented, but it's way too close to home. And out of respect, I can't tell that story. But Michelle, I do have a worryingly similar one to tell you today in a very close proximity to where my other story that I can't tell you about took place. Do you want to hear it? No, of course I do. Do we need some triggers here? Not necessarily. Not yet. So today, Michelle, I'm going to tell you about the sad case of Diane Chenery Wickens, who was murdered in 2008 in East Sussex. I got my information from various sources, mostly The Guardian and The Argus, which is a local East Sussex paper. Diane Chenery Wickens was a BAFTA award-winning makeup artist who worked on BBC TV shows like The League of Gentlemen. Do you remember that one? Of course. Wow. I was waiting for you to do a catchphrase. Oh. It's a local shop for local people. Yes, exactly. Local people. You're my wife, Nadiv. How many have you got? Local people was like the big one. Eleventy. Eleventy. Okay, so there's that one, which is fabulous. And if you haven't seen it before, if you're from a country where it wasn't shown, seek it out. It's grim, it's dark, and it's fucking funny. It's really good. 
I don't know if it stands up, actually. I think it had to be maybe censored a little bit. I think all those things are of of their time, you know. Yeah. You go back now and I personally was... There's a black face. Well, I was never a fan of Little Britain, but that definitely does not hold up. Well, Diane also worked on other shows, not so politically incorrect. Well, maybe Dead Ringers is. I don't oh, know. Yeah. Dead Ringers is the... Um, <laughs> impressions show like they've got people like Rory Bremner and other people doing impressions of politicians usually impersonations that's Mm. it and casualty or casual e I like to say (laughs) casual e it used to be on a Friday night don't know when it's on now don't watch it anymore but in the first 20 minutes somebody would fall off a ladder or be hit by a car and the paramedics would have to come and get them and take them to casual e Going back to poor old Diane, on the night of the 22nd of January in 2008, she arrived at the home she shared with her husband David in the East Sussex village of Duddleswell. Duddle. Duddleswell. It's in a beautiful part of the world, I have to say. Diane and David met in 1996 when he worked as a prop and stage delivery driver for the BBC and he'd often give tarot readings in the back of his van for the production staff and actresses. He was a bit spiritual, you see, and Diane became intrigued about this. So one day she asked him about a prediction that she had previously had regarding her personal life. Doesn't say what it is, but they began a relationship And eventually they married. So flipping back to the night of the 22nd of Jan, 2008. That evening, Diane had discovered an itemised phone bill with many of the same numbers repeated. She rang one and heard the voicemail of what turned out to be one of her husband's mistresses. No! Yeah. So then she rang another and got through to a gay chat line. No! He's a dark horse. (laughs) This was just the end of her tether, I think, because for months before that, it's believed that Diane had been visited by bailiffs and that's how she discovered that she was in £17,000 worth of debt after checks for 24000 from her husband had bounced. Now, just bear in mind, she's an award-winning BBC makeup artist. She out-earned her husband by miles. Oh, he no. was a delivery driver, essentially. I'll tell you a bit more about him later on. I'll just tell you what was reported as basically what they thought happened to her on this night. They believe that she confronted David with all of this information, the Mm. money, the sex, the lies, etc. And the possibility of this secret life of his coming out prompted him to kill her and dump her body less than 10 miles from their home and about a quarter of a mile from the Lavender Line Steam Railway track, which is where he worked as a volunteer near a place called Uckfield in East Sussex. And police, when they searched, came so close to her body but didn't see it. Yet a dog walker, good old dog walkers, they're always the ones finding the bods, they noticed an unpleasant smell under a holly bush just yards from a busy road. She had been left unburied and there was no forensic evidence Because her body had been left out in the open and had decomposed so badly. Well, it's been out there for a long time if it's decomposed, that poor woman. Completely decomposed so badly it was impossible for forensics to determine how she died. Did nobody think she'd gone missing? Didn't turn up for work? Well, yes, he reported her missing. Right. Two days after she was killed, he called the police and let them know. 
But going back to how her body was found, there were some other strange details, like her favourite cowboy boots being placed next to her body, and her wedding and eternity ring had been removed. So, like I said, David had reported her to the police as missing, and he told the police that they'd both travelled to London so that she could attend a meeting at the BBC, but she never arrived at the meeting. This is what he told them. Well, police investigations quickly revealed CCTV images that showed David Chenery Wickens had travelled to London alone and that there was no record of any BBC meeting. Right. Well, that's pretty easy to... to, Easy. That's pretty easy to check. Didn't think it through, David. No, he didn't. Didn't think it through. Then David used Diane's mobile phone and sent messages to her friends to make it appear as if she was still alive. I'm just going to say right here that the other murder that I can't talk about, this aspect, featured. No. It all follows the same narrative. It's this sad. is so awful. Mm. And the fact that you're going to get busted. People don't really get away with murder. And then to do all of this, you're digging your hole even deeper. Well, listen, even more bizarrely, because he was spiritual, he did something else odd. He left a message on her mobile phone, knowing she was dead, mm. saying, I'm trying to tune in to you. You seem to be not in a good place. I'm at home, our home, wishing you were here with me now. How weird is that? He's a fucking psycho. Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Days after her death, he was caught on CCTV again, pawning his wife's jewellery for £100. Creep. Police later found bloodstained jewellery hidden in their home. And in a later police interview, he changed his story about her disappearance. He then changed it to saying that they had parted ways after breaking up at East Grinstead Railway Station and that his wife was too ashamed to face up to her money troubles and their failed marriage, so she went to Spain to start a new life. (laughs) Come on, David. It's getting more and more fanciful. Shut up. Anyway, David Chenery Wickens, who was 52 at the time, was eventually charged and later found guilty of murdering Diane Chenery Wickens. And during the six-week trial... He was exposed as a sexual predator and a compulsive liar who had affairs throughout his 11-year marriage to Diane. So it also came out on the night that he had reported his wife missing that he had left sexual messages on a former girlfriend's phone and again later that night called a gay chat line and arranged for a man to come to the house. The man was later called to testify because police were able to trace all of this and he told the court... This is good, Michelle. You're going to love this. He told the court they didn't have sex because when David opened the door, this man who was called round, he got the ick because David was... (laughs) David greeted him at the door in a white toweling robe. No! (laughs) It's not sexy, Michelle. It's not. People don't find it sexy. Did he have a... Come on. Are you... Hang on. You're having a go at me about the robe. I am... Yes, I am having a veiled attempt at having a go about your not sexy robe, which I have to say you haven't worn for a long time. I haven't because I've actually got the winter robe stashed away. and <laughs> It's the mothballs. I've got to protect the robe. You can't have the robe just out all. I mean, you're not going to wear a, a robe like that in the summer. I've got my, my washed linen robe for the summer, but okay. there's nothing wrong with a robe. A robe for all seasons. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I will say that I do often leave the house in that robe 
Oh, what? I go to I'm the mailbox. I might go down no. the street. If I'm really pushed for time, I might just jump on the bike and go to the store in that Jesus, robe. Jesus, no. Do you think Michelle, that makes me a murderer? What's happened to you? I will say, people, Michelle's mailbox is not just outside her door. Oh, is it? No, it's just upstairs. That's it's okay. up the stairs. It's up the stairs. I just thought you had to walk all those stairs all the way down to basically the town to get your mail, but you don't. But I don't mind doing that because do you know what? In your robe. Now that we're over 40, I literally give zero fucks. I don't care. (laughs) I don't care. But I do have an image of this guy. He's prepped in that robe. Thinks he's something. I bet you he's got like a whiskey and a cigar and that robe like, come on in, you know. Yeah. And the guy's like, eh, ick. (gasps) I don't think (laughs) it was the robe that gave him the ick. It was the whole (laughs) shebang. If you say so. Going back to this guy, David, right? Diane's friends said that when she met David, she was in a vulnerable place, having suffered insecurities after her last relationship breakdown. And I think that he was quite a bit older than her. She was in her 30s when she died. He was in his 50s. Mm. One of his colleagues remembers that when David moved into Diane's flat in Battersea, all he had was a single plastic bag containing his possessions. This man said... He struck us all as strange. He had no past. He was not on speaking terms with his family and had few friends. Would you marry a man like that? big fucking red flags here. And I mean, basically, she threw him a bone. She was successful, Mm. award-winning, had a fucking place in Battersea. Nice. This guy was like, ka-ching, I just found my sugar mama. Sounds like he was... uh, fishing for something like this as well i don't know we no one knows see on the other hand so like you said she was a great success she was a high achiever and from that day on this colleague says he sought to control her he was a control freak these are words from one of his colleagues and like i said diane was 37 at the time she was ready for a lifelong partner and when her friends asked Mm. her why she was marrying david she said because he asked she didn't say because I love him. No. She said because he asked. I think she was feeling oh, lonely. Her sake. self-esteem was in the gutter. God knows yeah. what had happened to her previously, but it was that low. She was that low in her self-esteem and her mm. self-confidence that when this guy showed her some attention, and I believe he could be charming because he had a string of oh, lovers yeah, sure. throughout their 11-year marriage. He also had a string of gay boys that he called up from the chat line. So, you know, I don't know how charming he is. But just saying, I'm sure he was charming. Sorry, character slow. <laughs> By the time they got married in Dorset in 1997, they'd only known each other for a year. Not dating, known each other. Then the couple moved to Sussex in 2000 right. with David reinventing himself as the Reverend Chenery Wickens. He kind of just decided he was a reverend because of his spirituality, I what? suppose. I mean, it doesn't really go into detail, all the, all the information. <laughs> There's not much info out there, I have to say. I had to really deep dig. He went on to work as a volunteer, as I said earlier, on the local Lavender Line, which is a steam train that takes in the beauty of the area. And he was also known, like I said, as a spiritualist, and he would offer his services to vulnerable women. David said he had a hotline to the other side and he could communicate with the dead. (laughs) Anyone here know a Gary? Anyone know a Gary? Speak up, speak up, Gary says. No, I don't know what he would have said or done, but somehow he drew people in because there was this opera singer woman who lent him more than £21,000 after he told her he was suffering from prostate cancer. 
which wasn't true. Oh, God. This guy just gets more and more bizarre and worse and worse and creepier. There was loads of women. And another one who was called to testify said that David had told her he'd ended his marriage, which also wasn't true as far as his wife was concerned. David told one of his girlfriends that Diana was neurotic Mm. and had been detained in a mental hospital. So when this girlfriend once phoned the family home, she was surprised when Diane answered. She told the court this. I couldn't believe an educated woman like her was with a man like that. I actually said to Diane, I'm having an affair with your husband. And I remember her saying, you're jealous. She didn't believe it. Oh. So she was in a bit of denial about what David was really like. And I think maybe until... The bailiffs came a-knocking and the gay chat line numbers kept racking up. That's when it finally got to her and maybe she threatened to kick him out. And that was the end for him. I also think that we don't know how much control this guy had over her, if it was coercive or if he just chipped away at her self-esteem to the point where she just felt like shit. You know, it was already on the floor, according to friends. Sussex Detective Chief Inspector Steve Johns Mm -hmm. said there had been many more victims of David Chenery Wickens lies and seduction. Yeah. He was jailed for life. You'll be pleased to know in 2009. Oh, even though there was no evidence showing how she died and no confession. But they got him. Wow. How? I don't know. Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay. I couldn't find any more information. It's really thin Mm -hmm. on the ground. But I do know that these kind of murders happen all the time. And I'll go on to talk about that in a minute. During the trial, which happened in 2009, it was a year after her disappearance and murder. The papers named him, you'll love this, the Vicar of Fibley. Oh, shit. (laughs) Do you know what? It must be the son. It was probably all of them. I think they all loved it because at the time of the trial, there was a moment where he was being asked about his spirituality and spiritualism. And he suddenly began to make groaning noises, then fainted, (gasps) fell down the steps and banged his head, had to be dragged off to hospital. And the court had to be paused. It's just all theatrics, isn't it? Dickhead. Absolutely. So he denied killing Diane. However, he did also say that their relationship was over by the time of her death. And that's all I've got about that. The family were desperate to know the circumstances in which Diane was killed, but he'll never tell. And I assume, Michelle, that is because he has that power. He's in there for life. There's no getting out. I don't know how they got him, but they did. And he'll never tell them what he did to her. He's not remorseful. Wow. I just don't understand that. Unless you're, like I said earlier, a fucking psycho, literally. How do you not have remorse for that? I'll tell you what I think. This is from America's ABC News channel. Statistics show that around 34% of women killed in the US in 2021 died at the hands of their partner. What do you think the percentage is for men being killed by their partner, women partner? 0.2? 6 A former FBI agent said that there are two types of domestic homicide, premeditated and spontaneous. And he says the spontaneous ones are people who probably have a history of abusing their spouse. They may have alcohol or drug dependency issues or raging jealousy issues and end up killing their spouse in a fit of rage. The premeditated homicides, on the other hand, the motive is usually jealousy or greed. And there's an example given They become enraged because their wives have become more successful, which is probably David's situation. But he knew she was successful before he even turned up. It's not like it happened during the course of their marriage. 
The agent goes on to say, these premeditated homicides are often poorly planned. Like I said, he didn't think it through because Mm. they're so driven by getting rid of their partner that they actually don't even think through the logical things like my cell phone can be tracked. At the core of domestic violence is power and control. And when it comes to domestic homicide offenders' personalities, they are usually narcissistic and antisocial, according to this FBI agent particularly with the ones that are planned. He said, you're really talking about antisocial personalities. It's all about fulfilling their needs and nothing else matters. Now, I will tell you a little bit about antisocial personality disorder. In case you're wondering, just quickly before I wrap up, ASPD, it's known as, it's a deeply ingrained, rigid, dysfunctional thought process that focuses on social irresponsibility with explosive, delinquent and criminal behaviour with no remorse. Common manifestations of this disorder are the disregard and violation of other people's rights. Other symptoms may be failure to conform to the law, inability to sustain consistent employment, deception, manipulation for personal gain and incapacity to form stable relationships. As for narcissistic personality disorder, we have spoken about this before on this podcast. This is the one that people bandy about all the time when they've been fucked over by some dickhead who is selfish. And it's usually used to describe someone who lacks empathy. The manual adds grandiosity, the need for admiration, reduced tolerance to stress, exploitation of others and aggression. So you don't have to be a psycho. You can just have the first one you said. (laughs) The first one I said was an antisocial disorder, personality disorder, disorder. but coupled with NPD, which is narcissistic personality disorder, which it is often comorbid with other disorders, NPD. Mm -hmm. And it's worse when it's coupled up with the antisocial disorder. And that makes right. it difficult for the person with the disorders to maintain work and relationship. Studies have been done to say that there could be a genetic factor in developing these things, but there's also environmental factors such as neglect or rejection in childhood. And that goes on to create a fragile ego, which develops into narcissism in later life. But equally, holding the child in really high esteem also has negative effects as well. If you instill in them a belief that they have extraordinary abilities and things like that, it's hard for them to live up to. And there are actually two types of narcissism. There's the grandiose type and there's the vulnerable type. And I think it's very, very difficult to get someone presenting with those in therapy because they're not aware that they have it. Well, no, that's the thing, isn't it? They're so self-obsessed, especially narcissists. Mm. They don't know they're narcissists because they're so narcissistic. And they often believe that other people are just jealous of them as well. That's another thing. But I just want to say, currently, I am, against my better judgment, watching Married at First Sight UK. Oh, I didn't even know it was on. I fucking love the Australian one because it's a shit show. It's the most compelling guilty pleasure Yeah, it's good to watch as a social experiment. And I wonder if anyone else out there who's watching it right now can guess who I think, out of all the couples, which partner has narcissistic traits. Not the disorder as such, but there are a few narcissistic traits that I'm seeing in one person at least. Okay, write in, people. Write in. Do write in. Telerex for sure. Telerex, one more. I'm watching telly. You're watching telly. We're watching telly on the telly. It's the television. I also have a murder this week. Again, this poor woman did nothing to deserve what happened to her. 
And I will say that this request actually for this hometown murder comes from eavesdropper Steph, who asked us to see what we could find on a Canberra case that she remembers from when she was at college, mainly because she knew the victim's sister. Oh, my God. Do you know what? I'm feeling like we're becoming the Nancy Drew of podcasts. (laughs) Girls, help me. I have a question and I've always wondered what happened. Can you find out? Get Michelle on the case. Well, and you too. You know, you are a super sleuth. I will just give a quick trigger warning here because some of the details are quite upsetting. Oh. And I do think that if you actually had a connection to this case, it probably will feel quite emotionally raw. So we're going back, like I said, to my hometown, Canberra. So many fucking murders in that capital, that bush capital. It is a bush capital. (laughs) Bush capital. Don't say bush because you don't want us to get in trouble. Bush. Bush also has a double meaning. I'm not even going to go where that goes. I think we all know. Now, we're going back to the night of Thursday, July 22 in 1993, guys. Just trying to figure out how old I was and what I was doing. Then. Well, Nirvana, I mean, Kirk Cobain hadn't killed himself yet. It's, that's a year. I was living in Peckham. Yes. In London. Well. With a little baby. Yes, you were. 25-year-old Leanne Ford was not living in London. She was living in Canberra and she'd been going out with a guy called Ross William Arrowsmith, who was also 25, and they'd been together for around six months. Leanne was working at the Civic Library in the admin section. According to her dad, Ken Harvey, the pair had seemed affectionate with each other in that six months. Ken and his wife, Ray, had even gone off on a couple of small holidays with Leanne and Ross. So everyone thought that things were, you know, okay in that relationship. Thing is, Leanne was not happy. And according to one report I read, she'd apparently felt overwhelmed by the attention Ross gave her. So I'm thinking here that maybe he was possessive or too clingy or just more into it than she was. Mm -hmm. So she wanted out and apparently a few days before Thursday, July 22, she told him that she wanted to call it quits on the relationship. Yeah. Now, I think this must have come as a bit of a surprise to Ross, who I imagine must have been a bit heartbroken by that revelation. So he invited Leanne to his parents' place in Crane Place, Farrah, which is a nice middle-class suburb on the south side of Canberra. The purpose of this get-together was reportedly to discuss their relationship. But I also read that she was pretty adamant that it was over. I imagine that Ross probably knew this, but he just wanted to give it one last crack in the hope of staying together. And Mm -hmm. as you can probably guess, that night did not go well. No. Going into the Canberra Times archive, the first mention of this case happens on July 24, when both of them are unnamed at this stage. But the newspaper reported that a seriously ill man was in Woden Valley Hospital under police guard after a woman was found murdered the previous day at a house in McIntyre Street in Narrabunda. Narrabunda, that's on the other side of town. It is. And you went to Narrabunda College. I did. And I'm wearing an outfit that is kind of reminiscent of the sort of things that we would wear oh, really? at Narrabunda when I went there. There was a big faction of hippies. I wasn't one at the time. Yeah. There was a bunch of hippies that would wear these flowing frocks and they looked like they came straight out of Flower Child Territory, L.A. 
or San Francisco. Yeah, I was with the skater punks. Oh, you were in the chest. I had short blonde hair, a skateboard. Yeah, okay. Bandanas. Well, Leanne was was a few years older than us and she lived in McIntyre Street. I feel like I know that name. So that's her home, is it? That's where she lives. Okay. She lives in McIntyre Street. But she met him the night before in Farrah. In Farrah at his parents' house. His parents' house. God, okay. It then goes on to report that the body of the woman and the injured man, because remember, he's in Woden Valley Hospital, they were discovered around 11.15 inside her house in Narrabunda. If we unpack that a little bit, Ross had invited Leanne to his parents' house in Farrah and now both of them are found at her place in Narrabunda. He's injured, she's dead. So something has gone badly wrong the night before for it to end up like this. So just pin that. So apparently the woman, like I said, unnamed at this point, had a number of head injuries and her death was immediately being treated as murder. Oh, God. Yeah. It then goes on to say that police were expected to interview the injured man in hospital over the next few days And they say that the guy had been shot at close range in the head by an industrial bolt firing gun. What? That's what they use to kill sheep, isn't it? To all effects and purposes, an industrial nail gun. Oh, God. So after he was found... Not a bolt gun, a nail gun. They say bolt gun or a bolt firing gun. So I guess it's a bolt gun, but they also call it a nail gun. So maybe oh, it's somewhere in between, but it was definitely not the kind of nail gun you buy from, you know, B&Q or Bunnings. It was a proper industrial one. After he was found, he was apparently rushed by ambulance to hospital and underwent emergency surgery, where his condition at that point was critical Horrific. but stable. The following day on July 25, the Canberra Times follow up on the case, naming both Leanne and Ross confirming that Leanne had gone over with the intention of breaking it off for good with Ross and had agreed to see him in person to talk about it. But it also says when Leanne hadn't shown up at work at the library on that Friday morning, her dad had gone over to her house at around 11 o'clock to see if she was all right. And he found her dead body wrapped in a sleeping bag. I mean, Geordie, can you fucking oh, imagine how fucked up that must have been for him? parents' nightmare. That's bad. It's just terrible. So he also finds Ross there and he calls the police. Detective Sergeant Brian McDonald then goes on to say that a post-mortem showed that Leanne had died from severe head injuries. And the following day, the newspaper report reveals that although Ross's injuries were from a nail gun, it wasn't used in Leanne's death. And then the, the case goes cold in the media until Tuesday, the 23rd of November, when there's a committal hearing in the ACT Magistrates Court where Ross faced murder charges with none other than Ken Crispin, QC, leading the way. That bloody Ken Crispin. He's on everything. He's all over it. Let's remind ourselves what he was involved in previously. It was Anu Singh. And then it was the one that you told us about. With the brother-sister murder. The brother-sister. Girl's grandma murder. So he's all over everything. So he's leading the charge on the prosecution council. Mm. Trigger warning here because there are some not nice details coming up. Trigger warning. Trigger warning. Trigger warning. So according to Ken Crispin, Ross viciously attacked Leanne, repeatedly bashing her head 
with a red enamel kettle with such strong force that it resulted in skull fractures and extensive hemorrhaging, which is what ultimately caused her death. I don't know why, but I guess he probably freaked out when he realized what he'd done. But here's the thing. Mm. Instead of calling the police or even a fucking ambulance, Ross instead ran around his parents' place finding towels and sheets and a sleeping bag, which he then used to wrap around Leanne's body. And get this, Leanne was still fully clothed. And in fact, she was wearing her coat and had her handbag over her shoulder. She was ready to leave. Exactly. I think it indicates she was ready to go. I think she'd probably said to him, mate, it's over. I'm leaving. And then he bashed her to death with that kettle in those last moments before she left the house. Oh, dear. He wrapped her body up with the handbag still over her shoulder and in the coat. And then apparently after wrapping up her body, he then put her in his Ford and drove her body to her house in Narabunta, where he laid her out on the bed. And then he tried to take his own life by shooting that nail gun through his head. So apparently Ross had modified this nail gun, bolt gun with wire. When? I don't know. If he had done it previously, then that indicates premeditation. He was going to use it for her. Oh, fuck. I hadn't even thought of that. But they don't say a timeline on that modification. He'd modified it with wire and a bent nail to disable the safety shield on it so he could shoot himself in the head with it. God. Ken Crispin also revealed that the police found some incriminating stuff in his car, including a broken kettle, a mop, Mm -hmm. a pair of shoes, and clothing stained with, inverted commas, red-brown stains. Detective Sergeant Brian McDonald also testified that bloodstains were found on a wall and door handle. And I think this must be at the parents' house because they also found red paint chips near a combustion stove at the parents' house, which they linked to the murder. And I did read that that red enamel kettle had been sitting on that combustion stove. That, to me, sounds spontaneous. Like I was talking about before with regard to domestic murders, which I guess in this case it kind of is because they're in an intimate relationship. He just picked that thing up and he whacked her when she tried to leave. I agree. I think this is a spontaneous murder. I don't think it's pre-planned. A pathologist called Professor Peter Herdson concluded that Leanne had suffered extensive injuries to her head, consistent with the wax from the dented red kettle that was presented in court. He estimated that Leanne's death had taken place around 12 hours before her discovery, which I think is when they realised that she'd been murdered at the parents' place and then a body had been moved to her own house in Narabunda rather than the initial assumption that she'd been killed in her Narabunda house. The following day on Wednesday, 24th of November, 1993, on the second day of the committal hearing, the court heard that Leanne had actually started something with a guy from the library. Uh. Yeah, a guy called Jean Marini. Leanne's brother, Rocky Harvey, gave evidence saying that Leanne had told him that she'd already broken up with Ross, but that he had, quote, not been taking it well. And apparently before she'd gone to have dinner with Ross on the night she was murdered, she'd apparently joked to Rocky that she was, in inverted commas, a little worried about going over there. And that if she was not home when he got home, because Rocky had been living with Leanne in Narabunda for the past six months, that he was to come look for her. Mm-mm. Now, apparently when Rocky got home that night, he said Leanne's Ford Celica wasn't in the driveway, but he had seen Ross's 
Ford truck in the rear yard. And he Mm. just thought that Ross had stayed over and that everything was fine. He also said he'd heard some kind of noise in the middle of the night, but he didn't think much of it. And he hadn't been alarmed by anything. And he hadn't felt that anything was wrong. Then the new boyfriend, Gene Marini, had to give evidence where he said he'd met Ross around 30 times since he'd known Leanne. And although he he said he didn't like him, he'd always been civil to Ross. He then said he and Leanne had known each other for a while and that they'd been, quote, forming a stronger relationship in the days before her death. Now, it turns out that Ross had been living with Leanne in the months before she'd called it quits. So I guess when she ended it, she'd kicked him out which was why he was back living with his parents in Farrah. And I think Jean had said they'd spent a few nights together previously, which I don't know if that implies they were already sleeping together or not. But Jean went on to say that Ross had asked Leanne to go to his parents' house for dinner on July 22, which she agreed to because according to Jean, it was the moment when she would make it absolutely clear that it was over and they were never, ever going to get back together. And he said in court, I think she was relieved to finally get it over and done with. She said she was worried about the whole thing. Now, this makes me question whether or not she already knew that he was unpredictable or had violent outbursts. I don't know, and it doesn't say, but maybe some of our listeners actually knew Leanne or the family and maybe have some details to share. Either way, it turns out that Leanne had regularly been seeing a clinical psychologist who told the court that Leanne had displayed a low self-esteem and had discussed her relationship troubles in the psychiatry sessions. Apparently, she'd also told the psychologist that she had become tired of Ross's adoration and was feeling really positive about ending the relationship. Hmm. Yeah, she just had low self-worth and I think was really excited for this next step with Jean, or at least to end the relationship with Ross. She was in therapy and at some point she was working on her low self-worth, low self-esteem. And at some point she realised that she wasn't happy in this relationship where he was adoring her all the time. Mm. Like I said, maybe it was suffocating. Maybe it was, you know, love bombing. Maybe it was creepy. I mean, perhaps. Well, I think if anyone was going to know, the therapist would have known if there was any abuse within that relationship and it would have been revealed at the trial. Good point. Good point. Sometimes, though, mental abuse, is, especially in the early 90s, might not have been flagged yep. as such. And maybe she just didn't realise that what was happening to her was not good. But she knew something was off and she was ending it. So the next day, the paper reported on the third day of the committal hearing where it was determined that Ross would be up on murder charges. And when he was directly asked by the magistrate if he had anything to say, He said he did not and that he reserved his defence for the trial that was going to be held, you know, in the upcoming weeks. Yeah. He was then given bail of 2,500 bucks and told that he had to live with his parents. And the court also heard that the nail that Ross had shot into his head from that nail bolt gun had entered the right side of his head above his ear, had passed through his brain and had come out on the left side of his head which meant that he had lived, but the injury affected movement in his left arm and legs. But they do say quite clearly that there was no mental incapacity as a result. Oh, okay. Which sounds like considering what he did to Leanne, that guy got off pretty lightly with those injuries. Mm -hmm. So then the case kind of goes out of the press until a month later 
on December 24, 1993, when we find out that in the previous month, Ross had been convicted of Leanne's murder and was sentenced to 16 years jail with a non-parole period of nine years and that his legal counsel had appealed the decision against his sentence and conviction. On what grounds, you might ask? Yeah, I'm asking. Well, it's kind of fucked up. So the Canberra Times report that after the appeal, the 16-year jail term was cut to just six and a half years. What? Now, apparently the federal court had unanimously dismissed Ross's appeal against his murder conviction... But they did agree that the minimum jail term of his nine years was excessive and should be reduced to six and a half years. Because during the trial, you know, it did show that without doubt, Ross had beaten Leanne to death with that kettle after she told him their relationship was definitely over. But the grounds for appeal was that there was some suggestion that Leanne may have also told Ross she'd started something with someone else. Right. And that's okay. I'll get to that. Fuck now. So apparently, even though we'd previously been told that the nail that Ross shot into his head after he killed Leanne had left him with physical injuries, but no mental injuries, the court was now hearing that what went down on the night of July 22 might not be fully certain because Ross apparently was suffering from amnesia and brain damage from his suicide attempt. Mm. And the reason the federal court reduced Ross's minimum jail term by nearly a third was because it thought Chief Justice Miles had failed to give sufficient weight to the subjective factors around the case. Right. Now, these include things like the fact that Ross had no previous convictions, had a good character, his supposed extreme remorse, we don't know about that, his severe physical and mental disabilities, where the fuck did they come from? Because we had just been told in the month earlier that he had no mental injuries and he just had restricted movement on his left side, on his arm and his leg, and that his career was now over and that his sporting interests were now over and that he would be particularly vulnerable as a prisoner. I don't know what the fuck that means and why he's so vulnerable and they do not go into that. Interesting. Um, I wonder why... My guy, David Chenery Wickens, got minimum of 18 years, actually, but life sentence for murdering his wife with no evidence of how she'd been killed, only circumstantial. We've got the smoking gun here. We've got the red kettle. They know he did it. They do. They have the evidence. The only thing I can think of is that it was about 10 years earlier, 15 years earlier. Yes. What had changed in that 15 years? The world. I think people's... Unfortunately. Expectations around murder has changed. But the most important basis for Ross's appeal against the conviction was his assertion that the trial judge had wrongly prevented the jury from considering whether or not he should be convicted of manslaughter rather than murder because... And honestly, Geordie, hold on to your hat here because when I read this, my fucking jaw hit the floor. Ross claimed that he should get a more lenient sentence because Leanne had provoked him into killing her. Get the fuck away from me. That infuriates me. Why? With words, she provoked him. With kettle, he responded. Yeah, what a fucking asshole. Not only did he beat her to death with a kettle, now he's saying that she asked for it. Now, apparently under ACT law, the jury is obliged to acquit an accused of murder and find them guilty of manslaughter rather than murder 
if it can be proved that their actions were the result of a loss of self-control induced by the dead person's conduct. Who says, who made this law? I know. Whether or not that applies is determined by whether or not the dead person's conduct was such that an ordinary person in the accused position would also have lost control. Now, thank fuck Chief Justice Michael Black and Justices John Gallup and Jane Matthews, woman on the little trio of three, they said that in Australia in the 1990s, it would be entirely out of line with the ordinary person standard if the mere telling of a partner that a relationship is over, whether accompanied or not by an admission of infidelity, were taken as potentially sufficient to induce an ordinary person to so lose control as to deliberately or recklessly inflict fatal violence on the other. In other words, fuck off, Ross. Fuck off, Ross. But listen... I know, Leanne did not want to be with him. But you know, in some countries, an admission of infidelity can result in the woman being publicly stoned. Yes, of course. Different cultures, but we're talking Australia in the 90s here. Well, thank God for that trio of judges. What a fucking creep Ross is. But still, get this. What happened to him? Well, Ross's lawyers still tried to argue that given Ross's non-violent background and the fact that his loss of self-control had been so complete and so uncharacteristic that Leanne must have done something more to provoke Ross than announce the end of their relationship or the Mm -hmm. affair, that he should get special consideration. But thank fuck, all three of those judges rejected that suggestion as well. They also said that although there were gaps in the evidence, there was nothing in Leanne's known conduct which was capable of amounting to provocation. So, Ross, honestly, go suck a dick in jail. How dare you try and blame Leanne for what you did? Really? That guy. Why do you have to give them that punishment? You've said that before. You've told somebody who was in the Britney case to go suck a dick as well. Is that like the worst thing that somebody can be told to do? I don't know. It just seemed appropriate to say that in that moment. Okay, go fuck yourself, Ross, because you can't blame Leanne for what you you did. And it's fucked up that he would even try. I'll just say that I did go on Facebook to try and see if I could find anything on Ross and where he might be now. And there's nothing that I can find except there is one profile that's completely locked. And for the profile pic, it has a picture of a ute and it does look a bit like an Australian landscape. And you see an image, but only the top part, of two women's heads. Obviously, that dude is out of jail. When you said ute... I was thinking about youth, like the street slang for youth, because we were talking about that yesterday. I was talking about it with somebody else. Sorry, it's a car. You mean the utility vehicle. <laughs> a utility. Like a half a car, half an open pickup truck. Yeah, one of those. Sorry. A utility vehicle. So you see this car and then this picture of two women's heads, but you don't see their faces. So I don't know if it's him. It doesn't say anything about it. It's completely locked down profile. But maybe some of our super sleuth eavesdroppers might know where he is now. And if you do, do write in. We love it. Or voice note us. Or voice note the shit out of that. And that is the story of Leanne Ford and what happened to her and eavesdropper Steph. I'm sorry that you knew the victim's sister, Marika. I'm sorry that this might bring up some uncomfortable feelings and memories for you, but I know that you wanted to know more and hopefully you've got some more info now. Well done, Michelle, for covering that. It raises quite a lot of interesting points about what was acceptable then and what is acceptable now. 
And I want to share a little conversation I had with people who are younger than me yesterday when I was talking about my 12-year-old daughter on a bus with her friends, school friends, tiny little skirt, really long legs, really long blonde hair. They got on a bus, an older gentleman, I don't know how old, he could have been anything from 23 to 60, as far as my daughter's concerned, because anything over... Over 20 is old. ancient. <laughs> yeah. They walked on, all in their uniforms, bunch of them. He looked at her made a, a gesture to his seat and said, come and sit here, come and sit here. <gasps> no. She walked on past, stayed with her friends, whispered to her friends, that guy wanted me to sit next to him. And he kept looking and waving at her all through the journey. And eventually he got off at our stop. She convinced her friends to stay one more stop. And as he got off, he looked at her and pointed at, at her and said, you're beautiful and got <gasps> off. Right. So when she came to tell me that, I was like, well, here it goes. It's going to happen now for you. I was waiting for this moment. This is what happens. But my friends who are younger than me said, that is not acceptable. It's not okay. It's different from your day when you were a kid, you know, being shouted at to give blowjobs when you're like 12 and just playing with dolls in your front garden. Yeah. Or being touched by people putting their hands across your tits when they're walking past you in the school and other things like that. That stuff is not acceptable anymore and it hasn't been for some time. So I've got friends in their mid to late 30s who said, that shit did not fly when I was at school. Report, report. Everyone's saying report, report. Get the CCTV, get the time of the bus, blah, blah, blah. In future, she should report that shit. It's not acceptable anymore. Even just commenting on somebody's attractiveness. Well, some people would say that that is censorship, mm. but it's not if you are creeping somebody out. And most people would understand that a lot of attention like that rather than just passing saying what a lovely person you look like or gosh you're pretty or whatever when it's more than that and it makes the other person feel vulnerable that's not okay no of course it's not okay and in fact I do think that perhaps you have an obligation maybe even to tell the school or tell somebody because a you don't know who else this guy is doing it to and b you want a record of this I'm not saying something's going to happen but you need to be making people aware that there's a creepy guy on the bus who is uh, targeting girls in school uniforms. It's not okay. Yeah. Oh, that's awful. Interesting. So it gave me a lot of things to think about while you were telling that story, especially at the end. Another lighthearted episode of Eavesdropping. <laughs> Light with dark. That's how it goes. They never asked for it. None of these women asked for it. And how dare anybody blame the victim here? On that note, honestly, Jodie, I think there's not much more to say. What I would like to say right now, Michelle, is wherever you are, whatever you do, just just keep keep eavesdropping. 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 Eaves